Hi, podcast listener. Welcome to Truth About Exits, a show dedicated to pulling back the curtain to reveal what it really takes to get deals closed. You'll hear directly from founders of companies who have raised capital, sold their companies, and even those who acquire other companies for growth. I'm your host, Corin Woodmass. I'm a dealmaker, advisor, and when I'm not closing deals, I love to talk to others about their deals and what it took to get them closed. And now you can listen into these conversations too. For all the show notes and more resources, go to truthaboutexits.com. And we're live. Today on Truth About Exit, we have Stephen Spear from e-commerce lending. And Stephen and his team have closed over $200 million worth of SBA loans to help investors acquire online businesses. So I wanted to get Stephen on the show to talk about transactions from the lender's perspective, including a little bit about a deal we're currently working on that's had some bumps along the way. Stephen, thanks for joining us here on Truth About Exits. Corin, thanks for having me. Awesome. So Stephen, let's start right at the beginning. What got you into lending specifically for e-commerce businesses? Well, about uh, five years ago or so, I had somebody approach me saying, listen, I was looking at brick and mortar opportunities on the acquisition side, and I came across this business that's online. I said, oh, that's interesting. I said, what kind of business? Well, you know how you go on Amazon and purchase items on Amazon? I said, yes. And he said, well, that's the kind of business I want to buy that I want to sell products on Amazon and acquire a company that sells products on Amazon. So that's kind of how I got started. Oh, wow. Excellent. That's uh, kind of similar to my start. That's awesome. And so five years sounds like a short amount of time, but in this space, specifically in e-commerce, a lot has changed in five years. What have you seen change from a lender's perspective over that time, specifically around funding acquisitions? Well, I think just people are more cognizant of online businesses as it continues to be a larger portion of all uh, retail sales. You know, five years ago, you know, there were a lot of online retail sales going on, but not nearly as much as now. So as as people are more cognizant of that, so are banks, so are lenders. And everybody's realizing now that not only the here and now, but it's in the future and all the things point towards a larger and larger portion as time goes on of retail sales happening in the online space. Wow. So you've got ahead of that, really. And I know speaking to a number of SBA lenders, a lot of them aren't really aware of this space, I guess. So you've positioned yourself really well there. So is it open market, basically, for anything that's e-commerce? Or are you finding that lenders are specific in what they're looking to fund? I think, you know, there are a lot of lending opportunities within the space. It's very specialized. There are a lot of nuances kind of behind the scenes from a lender standpoint. And also a lender really has to understand the space to be able to lend in it. You know, some things are pretty obvious from a buyer's or seller's perspective, but some other things they're not really aware of that lenders have to look at in financing online businesses. So from that perspective, it does take pretty sizable expertise. And that's what I have. Okay, excellent. And I keep getting asked this a lot from both buyers and sellers in the e-commerce space and also outside as well, that people are expecting the economic cycle to change at some point here in the US and potentially worldwide as well. And do you foresee it to be become harder to do SBA loans if there is a different economic cycle? And how do you think about that? 
Well, you know, all things are cyclical and you have to be blind to think that a downturn is not going to affect lending because it always does. And I feel that lending has tightened up in the last 12 to 18 months a little bit, especially this year. But there's so much new business out there, you know, so many new opportunities for buyers to acquire companies online. There are vastly more companies online to acquire now than there were two, three, four years ago, as you know, and as you put out there earlier this week. So, but lenders are tightening up a little bit. I think they're being a little bit more choosy in on the buyer side, especially primarily because, you know, ultimately lenders, you know, don't want defaults, don't want loans to go bad. And they're being a little bit choosier as we had probably towards the end of a pretty cyclical boom and head more towards less robust economy. Sure. So a couple of weeks ago, we were working on a deal together and we had had a couple of bumps. At that time, we had a number of phone calls. And one of the things you were mentioning was the amount of loans that have been approved year over year is up. But some of the lenders you're working with were pulling back from lending in this space. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, what you're happy to share publicly, of course? Yeah, so I think that has more to less to do with the space in the sense that, you know, they're scared of the space. It has more to do with what lenders look at in terms of their portfolio. And, you know, we do a lot of loans here at e-commerce lending. And, you know, from time to time, we do have one of our lending partners max out on the amount of e-commerce business they're willing to do. And that's happened to us a few times in the last year. But it's prompted us to also to form new lending partners. So moving forward, we're going to be less affected by lenders taking a pause in the e-commerce space because we have increased our stable of lenders that we're able to go to for financing. Hmm. Excellent. And how does that outreach go when you're reaching out to a new bank? Do you have to kind of explain what the e-commerce world looks like or some of them already on board and maybe even lending in the space already? I think a little bit of both. The biggest thing is, you know, generally I look for, and I have a lot of connections within the business. So I look for somebody who is aware of e-commerce and aware of the lending within e-commerce. It's very rare for us here at e-commerce lending to just pick a lender who we really don't know and who really doesn't have any expertise or knowledge within this space. Now there is a, a lot of expertise I bring to the table, but still ultimately the underwriter approving or not approving a loan needs to be somewhat, you know, have the skill set to be able to know lending within the space. That makes sense. Okay. So you spoke about going out to different lenders and what you do with e-commerce lending. Now, I know that you primarily do SBA loans, SBA backed loans. Are you looking to increase outside of SBA backed loans in the near future for this space as well? Corin, that's an excellent question. I always look for new opportunities in lending. The biggest limitation within the space is that when a lender lends in the space, there's really no collateral. There's no, as I like to say, there's no there there. There's no brick and mortar. There's really, it's just goodwill lending. So it does limit the amount of lending opportunities outside the SBA area or arena. So but one thing that we're trying to obtain here at e-commerce lending is being able to fund the much larger deals in the, the deals, what I call the no man's land of seven to $10 million, where they're generally too big for SBA. 
and too small for private equity. So we're making strides in that arena to be able to bring that to the marketplace by the end of the year. Oh, wow. That'd be great. And we have been talking about this SBA acronym for a while. For someone that doesn't understand what SBA loans are, could you just briefly explain what the SBA program is? I'll explain what it is and what it is not. So so SBA Lending is the Small Business Administration. They ultimately insure loans that banks do. So they do not underwrite the loans. They do not fund the loans. They simply put out guidelines. Pretend they're an insurance company. So basically, a lender will lend based on the SBA guidelines. And if the loan were to go bad, the SBA would insure 75% of that loan. So it allows lenders to have a lot higher risk tolerance than maybe a local bank would perhaps doing other type of loans. So it's a win-win for everybody. One thing I do need to mention that the default rate within e-commerce lending, meaning within the space of e-commerce is extremely low. So it does allow lenders to be even more aggressive within their lending tolerance within the space. That's awesome. And why are these loans so popular? I, I get that it backs the bank, but why is it so popular with investors looking to acquire businesses? Well, if you think about it, so let's pretend it's a million dollar acquisition and you're an investor who could, you know, maybe even pay cash or come close to paying cash or a portion thereof. But imagine only having to inject or put a down payment of 100000 for a million dollar acquisition and the business you're trying to acquire is growing at, let's just say, 20% per year. Well, that's 200% return on your investment. I don't know where you or any of your listeners invest, but 200% return on investment is pretty colossal. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good way to frame this. So let's dig into it a little bit more. So you mentioned down payment or equity injection in that example of being 10%. What does that typically look like as far as what the buyer needs to put down? Generally, and this is depending on the cash flow of the business and the strength of the buyer, generally it's 10%. SBA requires a bare minimum of 10%, you know, from zero to $5 million, which is a loan maximum. But lenders have their own, what I call overlays. Most lenders are not going to only require 10% injection on a $5 million acquisition. That's just not going to happen. So generally, the rule of thumb is 10% up to a million and north of a million dollars, anywhere from 15 to 20% from the buyer. And if you get kind of in the 2 million and up range, not only is there a 20% requirement, but also generally lenders like to see some sort of seller note. And honestly, buyers like to see some seller note because it keeps the seller interested in a smooth transition and they have a vested interest in the future success of the business they're selling. Mm, absolutely. It can work as a win-win. So just to circle back to what you were saying there, if you're looking at acquiring a $5 million business, and especially if it's an inventory-based business, your chances of getting approved if you only have half a million dollars in cash is pretty low, right? It is, yes. Yeah, because you need working yes, capital and you also yeah. need uh, more assets to back that purchase. Excellent. Okay. and That's a good point, especially if it's an FBA business where it's maybe a very capital-intensive business. We definitely look for post-closing liquidity and also we're able to shore up working capital within the loan to make sure that the buyer has enough 
runway to be able to scale the business in a pretty quick fashion. Oh, excellent. And do you typically look for buyers? I was actually going to go sell side, but we're talking buy side. So let's keep going on this line. Sure. When you're looking at the buy side, so we often refer buyers directly to you to get pre-qualified before coming to talk to us about deals. So what do you typically go through with a buyer and does that change the larger the deal gets? From a buyer standpoint, the profile I like to see is a buyer with obviously liquidity, so meaning enough money for the injection or down payment. In most cases, a good, a fair amount of post-closing liquidity. Again, back to you know making sure that they have enough liquidity for inventory purchases post-closing. So we look at that, and yes, you know, further up the food chain we go in terms of acquisition price. Definitely, we look for a stronger and stronger buyer as we work up that amount. So, you know, at five million dollars, the profile of a buyer is vastly different than five hundred thousand. I would say anything above $2 million, lenders are looking for direct industry experience. Even if it's not running their own business, it could be that they worked for an e-commerce company, but definitely more on the direct side above $2 million. Whereas south of $2 million, you know, indirect experience is fine. We just have to bridge that gap and be able to give the narrative to the underwriter that, you know, indeed, you know, yes, the client does not have direct experience, but he or she has enough indirect experience to continue with the success and the growth of the business that they're acquiring. Yeah, absolutely. We go through less detailed but similar questioning when we first start talking with buyers about an opportunity. We often see, not often, occasionally you'll see people come through that definitely have the capital and the wherewithal to buy the business, but don't really understand that it's an operating business and they need to manage the business. They kind of look at this and think, oh, it's running without me. That's great. Or the the owner is claiming to work a few hours a week. This will be super easy. But that's a good point that we dig into as well as who's going to run the business post-acquisition because typically the seller themselves want to get out of the deal. And especially with an SBA-backed deal, they need to get out of the deal. They can't be involved for the longer term. Is that correct? That's correct. Anything beyond 12 months. Right. So yeah, that's pretty important to be able to take over the deal. Awesome. And okay, so let's talk a little bit about the seller side of the equation. So when we're prepping a business for sale that is is US-based to the Small Business Administration as a US government program, so they back US-based businesses and they don't, unfortunately, back acquisitions of foreign entities. So entities that are outside the US which is a shame. I wish they did, but they don't. So when we're working with a buyer that meets the criteria and we send them over to you for pre-approval, how does that process look like? And also maybe let's step back a step. uh, What is the actual criteria on the seller side? Well, one thing I request on the seller side, let me just first start off with you know a quick comment here. From a seller's side, it's incredibly advantageous to have financing available to a potential buyer. It just, you know, massively increasing your buyer pool by being able to, when you sell a business that is financeable through the SBA. And that's something I help with. I'm able to vet the financials of the business, be able to get detailed information from you or any broker regarding the type of business that the seller's involved with and what the financials look like and be able to really vet that business and then give that business 
the go ahead on the pre-qualification. So that first and foremost needs to be set. And then once you go to market with that business, be able to vet potential buyers as they inquire regarding that business. That's really imperative because especially from a seller standpoint, last thing a seller wants to do is have their business taken off market and then 90 days later, it has to be put back on the market because the buyer doesn't qualify. Yeah, exactly. I was actually, I had a seller on the podcast. Um, He'll be coming up shortly here in the next few weeks. He used another broker and they weren't going through an e-commerce professional like yourself. They were actually going through a local bank and it turned out that it was the first e-commerce transaction that this local bank had ever done. So that extended the process quite a bit instead of taking the standard time, which we'll get into, it took almost six months to get that deal done. So yeah, having partners involved early on that have experience in the space is a great idea. So yes, we wholeheartedly support that. Getting pre-approved is definitely where it's at. So it's not only the entity being US-based, but they need to be paying taxes in the US for more than a year. Is that correct? Usually one to two? Yes, that's a very good point. And by the way, audience, I've looked at e-commerce businesses where they hadn't been paying taxes and they've been around more than one or two or three years and it just baffles me. But regardless, I'd like to see at least two filed tax years, generally, depending on the price point, but at least that. And then obviously a year-to-date P&L would also be if available. So I like to look at those things and I also like to see a business summary and that really lays out the type of business they are, you know, number of SKUs, product mix, inventory demands, et cetera. So I kind of look at everything regarding a business. Great. And that's a good point, actually. So I have people come to me in Q4 saying, I want to sell my business now and, or is it better to wait? And typically As we've discussed a number of times, the tax returns play into that equation. But you also mentioned an up-to-date trailing 12 months profit and loss statement. So how do you weigh those two things, especially if a business is in hyper growth mode? Some of these deals we're looking at right now are growing 100, 200, 300% year over year. So how do you balance that in the pre-qualification, pre-approval side on the sell side? So definitely the tax returns hold much more weight than a year-to-date P&L or even trailing 12 months. So especially with a high growth business, most of the time, depending on the time of year, but most of the time, especially Q4, it's very advantageous with a high growth company for to wait till January to be able to file that tax return and be able to go to market then. I've seen it where they're getting a lot more for their businesses in having that approach. The business has been, you know, around a long time and there's not hyper growth, then it's not as affected by that. But definitely if you're in a business that's, you know, growing 20, 30% a year and it's Q4 and could wait half a month or a month, it's definitely advantageous to do that. Absolutely. And the deal we're actually working on at the moment, if I remember correctly, the pre-approval was actually lower than the buyer got approved for in the end. So as far as a multiple goes, so that pre-qualification is a good guide. And we always typically go above that with a number of ways that we market the business. So uh, 
it's not like the pre-qualification is the last word, um, but it definitely gives you some power when you're going out to market that it's been looked over by a lender and they've approved to X amount already. So it's a great tool to use. And I always, if possible, ask our clients to wait until the new year, especially as we're going into Q4 and there are a high growth business. So that's excellent. And what are you looking for with the tax returns specifically in relation to an SBA loan? Well, I mean, you know, there are certain tax uh, strategies that CPAs use that you have a company that's high growth, high top line number. And then when we lenders get down to the bottom number and it's a negative, that it gives us a lot of heartburn. So I, I look for businesses that are actually profitable at the end of the day. Now there are, you know, multiple add in or add backs that are part and parcel with these types of businesses. But at the end of the day, I'd look for the bottom line revenue with those add backs in there. And that bottom line number needs to be able to support proposed debt service of the proposed loan. And that's really what I look for. Mm-hmm. So a debt coverage ratio. And is there a ratio someone should be looking at with their business? It depends. Uh, the bare minimum from by SBA is 1.15. Oftentimes, especially right now, you have a business that's maybe below 1.1 or 1.0 debt service for 2017. So for 2018, I like to see well above the 1.15. So it, it depends on the transaction itself, but the bare minimum is 1.15. And most of the businesses I do vet you know, they'll be just shy of that in 2017. And then in 2018, they're just crushing it. They're at two, 2.3, 2.5. So I kind of weigh everything in terms of determining if the business qualifies. Okay, great. Yeah, that's a really good thing to think about. So it's just ticked over to July 2019 at the time of recording this. So if someone's thinking about selling their business in 2020, when would be the right time to, other than engaging an advisor, of course, uh, when would be the right time to reach out to a lender like yourself and see if their business can qualify for an SBA loan? I would say immediately because oftentimes I'm able to review not only the current financials, but previous year's financial and get a little color in regard to how those numbers are derived. And in some cases, the seller's gone back and amended their returns based on some observations I've made, you know, so that, you know, I would say start now, especially if there's any sort of commingling and involved with the returns, which unfortunately, I won't say it's commonplace, but I see it a lot. That really makes the waters murky moving forward. So oftentimes it could take a CPA months for, you know, untangling that web So especially if if you feel like you don't have really clean books, I would definitely get the process started immediately. Sure. And by commingling, you mean other income from other businesses or other sources, correct? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. For example, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead, mate. I was just saying, for example, they have two e-commerce, separate e-commerce businesses, and they're running through the same returns. That makes it very challenging for a lender. I'm not saying that it's a you know deal killer or anything, but it definitely takes time for a CPA to untangle the commingling and to provide adequate financials to support the business that's being sold. Mm, we've just been through that with one client and yeah, it takes some work. And then you've got additional addbacks. It opens up more questions on the, the buyer side. That one isn't an SBA 
deal. Um, but yeah, we had to do that regardless because you need to pass diligence even if a traditional loan isn't being used. So that's on the sell side, get started as soon as possible. On the buy side, is there a time where someone should reach out as far as the process when they're starting to think about acquiring other businesses? I would say right at the start, once he or she decides to move forward on acquiring a business, you know, feel free to reach out to me. I could start the pre-qualification process now. Unfortunately, some people don't. And then they put their letter of intent in. The first question any good broker is going to ask is, have you been pre-qualified? And if the answer is no, especially with a lot of these listings where it's pretty much a buyer's feeding frenzy, they're going to miss out on a large opportunity. Whereas if they're pre-qualified, and I'm pretty well known within the circles, generally their offer is going to be hold a little bit more weight than somebody who hasn't even spoken to a lender. Yeah, absolutely. We've been through that on a couple of deals recently, and it's more and more important. I think that's how you gain an edge. I had some friends reach out to me recently, a number of them actually talking about acquisitions in the e-commerce space, and they're wanting to target that one to two million range. And that was my advice to them was kept prepared as soon as you can. You want your offer to come in strong and have the best chance of closing because there is so much competition on the buy side, which is a good thing for people looking to sell for sure. But on the buy side, you really need to be prepared and ready to move quickly. And additionally, it's absolutely imperative for a buyer to get very well known with a broker like Corin to be able to, so when the opportunity does, even prior to opportunity coming to market where Corin goes, gosh, I remember, you know, David, he's interested in that exact same type of business. Maybe I'll give him first shot at that business prior to even it, it going to the marketplace. So buyers out there, it's imperative that you get the process going now and get a very strong relationship going with Corin. It'll pay dividends on the backside when you go to uh, acquire a business. I appreciate that, Stephen. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, it is important to work your connections and build up a case before acquisition. Most people think that having access to capital or just the thought of buying makes you stand out. And actually the opposite is true. So if you first talk to a buyer and you say, look, we could get you to about a million dollars, $2 million in acquisition price, is there anything they can do if they wanted to acquire a larger business or work with you longer term to improve their position? Have you worked with buyers like that in the past that have got to a larger level? That's an excellent question. Primarily, my recommendation is, you know, can you partner up with somebody? And I've had a lot of buyers come to me and say, listen, I'm really looking to go higher up than just the $1 million. What do you recommend? I said, well, do you know anybody that's interested in obtaining a business as well and partner up, you know, economies of scale and go for a higher level? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great great option. I've worked with a number of buyers recently that have done this on multiple acquisitions even, and it seems to be a pretty good strategy. You obviously want to work out your partnership agreement very tight, but that could be an option to take down a larger deal. So let's switch gears a little bit. Have you ever had a deal that just didn't work out? And would you be able to talk us through that a little bit? I think when deals don't work out, it has primarily, at least my, in my experience, has to do with two things. So when a buyer doesn't exactly tell the truth up front during the approval process, and then it's found out later that certain things were 
not disclosed. So that's from a buyer standpoint. I had a recent situation where the buyer disclosed that he had X amount of liquidity. And at the end of the day, he didn't have anywhere near that. So that kind of killed that deal. And then another instance has been where on the seller side, where the numbers look great, and then the seller puts out their whatever Q1 year to date numbers, and they're dismal. They're 50% off of what they were last year or something like that. And lenders get really skittish when numbers are going down. And I had an instance in early April, just like that, where business had been around three years, numbers look great, increasing sales. And then 2019, it was like the business hit a brick wall and numbers were 50, actually less than 50% of what they were the previous year, year over year. And that's pretty much a deal killer. There's no wiggle room through that. Lenders do not like financing what I call a falling knife. And that would really make things tough moving forward on that specific deal. Absolutely. And oftentimes a seller will get to a point where they sign the LOI. The offer looks great. The buyer's solid. They've been pre-approved. We're going through the process and the sellers pull back a little bit and think, well, that's the deal done. Let's move on and go do something else. And actually, that's the worst time to do that. You want to pay more attention to your business during the sale process to make sure you get through the other side. One, just to get the deal closed. And two, if anything doesn't work out, because not every deal closes, if something doesn't work out, you still want to have a sellable business in a couple months from now. So it's really important to keep managing the business and also be open in communication during that time if anything does change with the business. With Amazon businesses specifically, sometimes there's suspensions. So what we've had our clients do in the past is immediately when they see something happen, advise all parties in the process. So have you had, other than a 50% or more year-over-year decline, which no one's going to buy that, but has there been other scenarios that look like the deal was going to fall through and you've managed to save that deal somehow? Yes. I don't know if I was able to save it, but it had more to do with um, between buyer and seller. I've had it where certain things are found out during due diligence and the buyer goes back to the seller and asks for a price reduction. I've had it the other way where a week before closing, the seller says, gosh, my Q2 numbers look great. I want more money for the business. I've seen those. I've seen both scenarios happen before. But usually, you know, back to your question, usually where there's a will, there's a way, but there needs to be a will on both sides. And usually it's worked out. You know, there are situations where there's a deal where the lender comes back requiring additional injection or down payment or additional seller note or a seller note or whatever. But usually, you know, depending on the communication between the buyer and the lender and the seller and the broker, usually those things get worked out. It's very rare, at least with my business, that a deal doesn't close. First off, it's extremely rare for us at e-commerce lending not to be find financing for a client. That's extremely rare. And secondly, you know, I have a great team here and I have uh, obviously great brokers I work with as well as exceptionally good attorneys, buyer's attorneys involved, seller's attorneys involved. So all of us are very familiar with the space and all of us make it happen. We're used, a lot of us are used to working with one another. So it's, it's very fluid. And usually, you know, 97% of the time we bring it to the finish line. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that, again, is just a reason to use a good team that have experience in your niche. So in this space, specifically with e-commerce or online businesses, definitely should consider Stephen as part of the mix. So thanks for walking us through all of those scenarios. I think that was super helpful, especially for people that are new to the space and don't understand what the SBA loans really are thrown around a lot, but that was good to get some clarification. And just before we wrap up here, Stephen, is there anything else that I should have asked you but didn't? Anything else that you should have asked me? I think you, you did an excellent job in asking all the right questions. But you know, if any of your buyers or sellers need some additional direction, feel free to reach out to me uh, here at my offices at 813-766-4524. I'll be more than happy to assist you. And hopefully, you know, in all my comments, I've been able to help your listeners in helping them guide either towards a sale of their business or acquisition of, of a business. So I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, absolutely. And also check out ecommercelending.com, which is Stephen's main website for his business, e-commerce lending. So thanks again for coming on the show, Stephen. We'll add all of that to the show notes and definitely recommend people reach out to you directly when they're looking to either sell the business or looking to start on the acquisition side. Thanks so much for coming on Truth About Exits. Corin, thanks for having me. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Truth About Exits. Now, whenever you're ready, here are three ways I can help you. If your company is doing between 10 to 50 million plus in revenue, and you want help to plan your perfect exit to achieve the highest value and best deal terms possible, or if you'd like advice on acquiring other companies to continue to grow your company, we can help. Go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. There you'll see a simple form to tell us a little bit more about you, your company, and your goals, and my team and I will take it from there. So go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. The second way I can help is become a guest on our show. If you've had a successful exit, you want to share your story, or if you're actively acquiring other businesses and want to share your criteria with our audience, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash guest. Let's connect and I'd love to talk to you. The third way I can help you is one of my favorite things in the entire world is sharing the truth about exit stories with other entrepreneurs by speaking at events all over the world. So far, I've had the privilege of speaking at events in the US, Canada, UK, Spain, Germany, Ukraine, Czech Republic, over in Asia, China, Hong Kong, Thailand, and even Australia. If you'd like me to speak at your next event, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash speaker and tell me a little bit more about your event and we'll go from there. Thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next episode.